Hello, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. This is Episode 5, All About Conductors, Young Conductors. I'm Nathan Cole. I'm Akiko Taramoto. And we're here at home in Pasadena. How are you this evening? This is late in the evening. It is late, and if you hear any snoring, it is not me. It's our dog who's sitting next to me. Oh, that's true. Fleur's there. Hopefully she'll behave for this episode. <laughs> She's um, never happier than when we're droning on, so... That's true. Yeah, yeah. The more we talk, the better she sleeps. So, <laughs> hopefully, not true of our audience, but yeah. <laughs> well, I did want to mention. Speaking of our audience, we do read the feedback that you've given us on iTunes, especially um, the ratings and reviews. And I wanted to mention one recent review that um, I loved reading. The title of the review is inspiring, um, and actually, this review is inspiring for me because it makes me want to keep doing these episodes with you. Um, And it says, I'm a violinist just starting taking auditions. Listen to the show for the first time after melting down in the prelims for, well, they mentioned an audition this past week. And it helps so much hearing how I'm not alone, that the panel cares. Your stories about the job remind me why I'm excited to go for it in the first place. Inspiring, wonderful show. Thank you for creating it. So first of all, thank you for that feedback. And I think it's easy to forget when we're having these conversations that there are people, you know, still waiting to join orchestras and really excited about auditioning people who are where we were a few years ago mm-hmm. because i remember sure you melting know, down <laughs> i keep thinking i've taken my last audition hasn't happened yet <laughs> maybe it's <laughs> finally happened but, you know we're, we're always we're always out there ourselves so and i do wish that when i had just gotten started taking auditions i would not that i wanted to hear horror stories necessarily but it would have helped me to know that i wasn't alone and that you know good players had issues taking auditions. I, I know that would have helped. Yeah. I don't know what would have helped. <laughs> you don't think uh, I, I the stand partners for life in the pre-2000 era would have? Yeah, maybe not. Well, all right. We're going we're gonna to take a break from uh, talking about auditions today anyway, because it's going to be all about conductors, the sometimes friends, sometimes enemies. Well, we, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. We really couldn't do our jobs with out a conductor, at least in a, a full symphony orchestra. Although my first job was with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and we would several weeks a season do without conductor. That's actually that's kind of amazing. I'd, I've never played in an orchestra that, except um, for the time that Ricardo Mudi fell ill. That's for the right. Gala, and uh, we were forced to play without a conductor. I don't know why we didn't have a cover. Well, Chicago like stopped. Uh, they they. I don't know how it is now, but uh, during most of the years that we were there, no they cover. simply didn't have one. I remember okay. uh, our old colleague, Mike Ovnanian, saying that uh, for a while they had two cover conductors, uh, which seemed like one too many. And then for years they had zero, which seemed one too few, as <laughs> was proven on occasions such as that. So yeah, the time yeah, you're referring to, uh, uh, it was the opening night gala, right? And yeah. um, Sophie Mutter was yeah. uh, playing the Beethoven concerto. I think all those jokes about uh, wondering why we need a conductor sort of came back to, to haunt us that night. Yeah, <laughs> and I wasn't there. I was actually on tour with L.A. because I, I was just about to start my job here. Uh, yeah. So I missed that excitement. But right, it was just in the hour before the performance, maybe, that he... I think maybe you're right. Maybe it was immediately before the performance. He had a stomach issue. So 
So Anne Sophie Mutter had to. I, I, I we must have had somebody conduct a symphony. That, but although the only part of the concert that really stands out in my mind is the Beethoven Violin Concerto, which was incredibly hard to do without a conductor. Even though we had Anne Sophie Mutter leading, and she was you know she was playing, and of course she hadn't planned on leading, but she she led us while she played, and um and Robert Chen. Of course, she, you know, they talked before and they kind of pitched in together to lead everybody, but it was still a really nearly impossible impossible task to guide this huge, well, you know, relatively huge orchestra through this piece without a conductor. And it was strange because you think, you know, I guess accompaniment is tougher without maybe, I, I mean, you know, we just <laughs> became embarrassingly obvious that even the violins had no idea how the second movement <laughs> Right. Beethoven concerto, violin concerto goes. So yeah, we were, you know, no one knew when to change notes or <laughs> harmonies. It was, we just kind of hung on until someone, you know, jerked their head around enough, and then we realized we were supposed to be changing. <laughs> so some taking the conductors for granted, I guess. Yeah. So after that, I thought, yeah, you know, probably Beethoven violin concerto. You need a, you need a conductor for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the weeks that we did without in St. Paul, those were. Uh... Those were some lengthy and intense rehearsals with, you know, at first I think people were reluctant to speak up because you're, you're, we were so unused to it in rehearsals. So how did that work? Just everybody, everybody would, it was like a chamber rehearsal. Everyone would sort of contribute. Yeah. I mean, it was a 34 person orchestra and some of those pieces that we did would be basically strings only, but some would use most of the SPCO. And yeah, you know, I think there was a an unspoken protocol. You let principals, especially the concertmaster, make the most comments. But sure, anybody was free to speak up and ask to do things again and suggest musical direction. And Wow, so how much rehearsal did that take compared to... Well, we only had the same number of rehearsals scheduled. As, as like we do now for... Yeah, you okay. know, so it would be a four-rehearsal... Four deal and yeah sometimes it seemed to come right down to the wire no boss is telling us okay we (laughs) got to run this now so we had to keep our own eyes on the clock and that's really a different job to play yeah those were pretty exhausting weeks but but i won't forget them either i'm I'm not sure i'd want to well i'm pretty certain i wouldn't want to do it full time (laughs) um i mean i might play string quartets full time but that's a different animal than 30 some people and and yeah as as you were saying when it gets to be much more than that full orchestra without a conductor nigh on to impossible well like how does a retard work for example when i can i can't even really yeah we just have to keep eyes and ears out i mean there there's some muddling through as you say and i think worst case scenario is that everything gets watered down right everything sort of goes to default so if you're playing you know, 30 some people and trying to make a retard, you end up averaging out to the most predictable, most standard retard, (laughs) unless you bother to rehearse something different, more interesting. Um, and what, what's the repertoire that you would most commonly do? Well, for example, you know, we even did Ina Kleina knocked music. Okay. Um, and, and that wasn't the only thing we did, but I was glad to actually get to rehearse that and perform it with a great group. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Some What's of Strauss waltzes. Those would be, then those were difficult. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. 
So. But I, I bet when it really worked, the ensemble was probably much tighter than when you're in a conducted group. I think that is true. Yeah, the, the best of an unconducted performance is just so fresh and vital. Everybody's on point. And yeah, when things are really together, yeah, you just kind of get into that different listening mode, different watching mode, because you there's nothing else to rely on. So your ears and eyes have to be open all the time. There's no more sort of peripheral vision like we can use with a conductor. Right. Well, that does sound tiring. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe we actually have never really talked about this difference Yeah. before. Also, conductors bring a lot to the table, okay. bring a lot to the podium. And why why did we decide to talk about young conductors? I mean, uh, conductors are such a big part of what we do. Maybe we thought trying to cover conductors in one episode was too big a task. We have a young conductor. Yeah, our boss, Maestro Dudamel. Um, I keep wanting to call him Rodrigo from that show, Mozart in the Jungle. Right, which we, we're not quite sure what's what's the current state of of the plot of Mozart in the Jungle. But. Yeah, we, we haven't finished all the seasons. But um, no, so we have a, a young conductor that we see all the time. And I think, well, it's just kind of like starting at the beginning. Basically, we're we're hopefully still in the early-ish to middle parts of our careers. So I always like thinking about conductors that are around the same age as us. And that's for conductors, that's still considered young. I don't know if it's considered young mm. for violinists, but... These days, it's... I would... I think young is is really young. I think that, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's part of what we're going to talk about, right? I mean, this I mean, I think keeps I'm, skewing younger. First, of course, I'm older than our music director, and so are you by a couple years, right? Yeah. And that's nuts. I never had a boss younger than me. Yeah, that's sort of a watershed moment when you realize you're never going to have a music director your age or older ever again. Yeah, well, I, I still wouldn't rule it out in our case. I would. <laughs> it's LA. It's, you know, it's the city of youth. Um, but yeah, conductors are younger these days. It's it's tough. I mean, we we joke and we complain a lot about conductors as do yeah. all of our colleagues but but it's a it's a huge job and a, and a tough job and i i think that generations ago and sometimes even today there's uh, there's a bias right towards experience and sometimes toward uh european experience when we're talking about classical music and symphony orchestras because so much of the music is european and and I think it's fair to say that a generation or two ago, you to be taken seriously, you almost had to have that European maestro, right? Or at least, you know, most of the people you were considering for music director, if you were on the board of an orchestra, were going to be older European. Sure. Men. I mean, who was Michael Tilson Thomas? Maybe one of the first American maestros to. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, one of the earliest that's still doing it today. I mean, I always think of Bernstein. Oh, of course. Sure. Um, at the time that Bernstein was conducting, when you looked at the conductors of other major American orchestras, it was just, it was vastly European. And right. I, I think it was a difference in how conductors were trained back then and in Europe, as opposed to now. And that too, that that's like other industries too. I mean, when you mentioned chefs, you know, you used to have to 
apprentice under a master chef for, I don't even know how long, decades maybe, before you could even think of being allowed to open your own place. Right. Well, that's a separate issue, right? It's like the length of time that you studied versus like where you studied. Well, just that I, I guess when I'm thinking of old school conductor training, I'm really thinking of the European model. So where they had to, so if you were a young conductor sure. or if you wanted to be a conductor, let's say in Europe, you started out as a pianist at an opera house and you, you wouldn't conduct at all. You just, you know, they needed someone to prepare the show and prepare all the singers. And so you'd have to run through all their tunes with them. And if they had a cold or they didn't have the right voice or something, then maybe they'd want to sing it a half step down and you'd have to be able to transpose the aria a half step down and you'd have to run it backwards and forwards with them. And so you had to know all the parts of the opera super well. And yeah, by the way, they, there weren't, it's not like you were playing from a piano part for the opera, right? You, <laughs> you had right, to look at the full score. Reducing scores on site. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. And so after doing all that, then you would know the opera better than any of the performers, except for hopefully the, the actual music director. And so if anything happened to him and it was always a him, then you could step in and that's how you'd get your first experience really. Right. And then if you were good enough, you'd get your own small opera house somewhere and only then, I think, would you really get to conduct symphony orchestras. Right. So, yeah, that was kind of an established path. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, incredible. And many of the conductors that we've played under would have come up that way. And that takes a long, long time. Yeah, um, it does. I mean, I forget, I'm starting to forget what Seiji Ozawa says in that book, um, uh, the Haruki Murakami book. Oh, Yeah. But he does, he talks about, and I wish I could remember the piece. It, it was, don't think it was Rite of Spring. Maybe it was, it was something that he was called on to conduct kind of very short notice. And he said he didn't think he was ready. Uh, and this is after years of, you know, men, like, you know, many years of apprenticing Macarion. Uh, so yeah, that's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, no one would touch a piece unless, you know, especially certain pieces without many years of contact with someone who who they felt could teach them yeah and that was just the norm you know and and that was a and that was obviously a totally different era I and mean, we always talk about this so it's like back then and i'm pretty sure this is true so a conductor could could just have some like a few or sort of a much more limited repertoire of works that they did that they knew and there's more specialists various conductors who wouldn't dream of conducting other repertoire than what they were used to right everybody had their their comfort zone and it was fine and they were known for that and they wouldn't be asked to to step outside of that because audiences wanted to see say carrion conduct beethoven or you know the the real war horse pieces or yeah and, and you know orchestras it, it used to mesh rather nicely with the work the music that orchestras would put on to because it used to be that conductors comfort zones tended to coincide with audiences comfort zones and so you know orchestras would just play beethoven and brahms and the french music and the russian music and and that was yeah. kind of it so right now of course repertoire is just much bigger hugely varied and, yeah um, and so conductors yeah they've changed along with that and the whole the whole cult culture has gone along with that you know you have to know a lot 
more repertoire. It yeah. seems really daunting, and, you know, the, it, and they have to pick up things very fast. Right, and so all of that lends itself to not <laughs> spending forever on any one piece or any one style. Sure, so that's that's the downside, right? We feel that, you know, well, we're certainly not hoping to be locked in a dusty room with a bunch of <laughs> rotting scores. I mean, we we also, you know, we respond. I think we really do respond to conductors who whose familiarity with the score is just, it's astounding, you know? Right. Yeah, I sometimes forget what a difference that makes and or specifically how it shows up in rehearsal. And I know we both had a, a recent experience in mind, which we'll get to. Um, I remember back in school at Curtis, the way that the conducting teacher, Otto Werner Mueller, would select his students, we, the players, the members of the test orchestra, the lab orchestra, would only see the very final round. And I remember my first couple of years in school, I was really surprised when those finals came around and we'd get a chance to play with maybe eight student conductors. And out of those, he would pick two or three for that year's crop. And um, I remember we'd kind of look around at each other and say like, these are the best that <laughs> came through <laughs> because all we were seeing was their final round conducting the orchestra. And what we didn't know was that was just the tip of the iceberg. And for Mueller, that was maybe the least important part of his, of the application process with him. So all of them had to sit down and read piano pieces in open scores so of four different clefs, the soprano, altered tenor, bass, um, then they'd have to transpose those pieces in open score at site. They'd have to reduce orchestral and opera scores on the piano. The, uh, they had to take a huge battery of counterpoint and harmony tests, some um, score analysis. And then they also had to demonstrate familiarity with at least one orchestral instrument. Um, so not piano. I always thought that was interesting. Demonstrate and familiarity. I wonder what that consisted of. Well, they had to play it. I, okay. I don't know how good they were supposed to have to be, but he, he it couldn't just be something that you'd picked up for the audition, like, oh, uh, you know, <laughs> the kazoo. <I> mean, like, <laughs> the Russell triangle. Crow on the violin. <laughs> right. <laughs> you had to, yeah, you had to show that you'd really studied some other instrument. Um, I think, was he a trumpet player? That's what I remember. Uh, Mueller? Yeah. You would know. Um, which was strange because he was so hostile to the brass <laughs> so much of the time. It makes sense. Why. I mean, I think conductors who play violin are extremely that's true tough on the violins. And so when these you know poor students would get to the final round and have to conduct right a spring plus a piece of their choice, he had mostly made his decision because he felt like he could teach the the beating, the time beating as he called it, whereas he he just wasn't interested in teaching someone who didn't already have all the knowledge. Did he use time beater as a, as a insult? Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever, whenever he saw someone, right, just doing this sort of band director, uh, the, one of the worst moves for him was oh, using mirror, both hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, the mirror image, both hands just beating the beat. And he'd stop and, no, time beater. That's all you're going to do. They don't need you at all. <laughs> Um, yeah, oh, we, we'll, we'll, I, we probably will at some point fill a whole episode with Mueller stories because we both played under him. He, he you at all, well, I Juilliard. very little, but I think yeah, you, you should definitely. Well, people, people but, love those stories; those are very <laughs> entertaining. But fly, he was a real throwback 
Right, because now uh, it's considered important to be able to stand in front of an orchestra and 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 beat time, and and hopefully to do much more than that. Um, I'm not sure that youngsters now have the luxury of beating awkwardly and badly for many many years, because you I think you used to be able to do that as long as at the same time you were picking up all that knowledge. And then the ones who could do well enough with the hands, you know, would still be able to lead. Then the best, of course, would have the, the hands and what was inside. Sure. So when you talk about young conductors these days, you're talking about like people who were like maybe doing our youth concerts or, or you're talking about the emerging stars who are doing our subscription weeks. And Well, there have always been young conductors, right? And so, yeah, the, some of those would be our Dudamel Fellows. Um, and we, we have several each season here, which is something that we didn't have in Chicago. Also, sure, younger guest conductors. I guess by younger, I mean under 40. Sure. I, literally, these days, it's under 30, I think. It's really, you know. We do get we, several under 30. Yeah. And certainly under 35. I mean, I would say 40, you're kind of, uh, you know. <laughs> Are you? You're pushing, you're, you're rounding your way over the hill like we yeah, are. Yeah, you're, you're limping towards the pasture already. <laughs> well, what, since the young conductors are given more opportunity and more responsibility at that age than, than they would have been a generation or two ago, what are some of the things you've seen that, that work what doesn't work obviously we've mentioned a couple of the downsides of having to learn more repertoire more quickly getting thrown in front of bigger groups at a younger age well i think you know you see the the type of personality that thrives in that um, scenario of course is maybe different from the type who who gets gradually comfortable over years of, that's true of, you know so there's there's some of that i think um Let's take Dudamel as like a case study. I mean, he's, you know, very charismatic. Very, I mean, of course, they're all, I guess, the successful ones are often very char- charismatic. But, um, uh, very, you know, I would not we wouldn't say flashy necessarily, but someone who has a lot of um, youthful spark. You know, he's he's happy to share his, his exuberance. Well, he's a performer. Everybody. Yes, for sure. And... Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean charismatic are. is the perfect word for him. Well, let's talk about the first time we saw him. Uh-huh. How old would he have been? That that was right as yeah. he was signing with L.A. Because we saw we were both members of the Chicago Symphony. Was that two thousand nine then? Okay. So I'm thinking he would have been twenty seven, twenty eight, something like that. And it was a big deal. I mean, he came in with tons of hype. He had not yet been signed with L.A. So at that point, he was music director of the Gothenburg symphony in sweden mm-hmm. but everyone knew that he was going to go on to something bigger just nobody knew what and we in chicago we were also looking for a music director around the same time right so it seemed maybe was, a long shot that there was thought there was a thought that he hadn't come yet right but but people were talking about him like okay it's a long shot that someone that young would ever be under consideration but well i if think it would be I anybody think there was a feeling it might be like him. I I know I you know I'm a little embarrassed to admit because I you know I I think it was a little like you know this kind of panic like we need you know he's he's the we just heard he is the next big thing and you know he's coming and 
a month or something. We were so excited and we we're kind of really getting our hopes up. Like maybe if we love him, we're going to make him an offer right away. You know, maybe. It could right. Really someone work like out. that. You've got to act fast. So it was like buying this house. Yeah. We're sitting in right now. Like you know, it was literally like that. Like we, it was a really hot market, and you know we were like, can't afford to wait. If we see somebody we like. You know, we need to leap. Jump on, on it. Yeah. And so when he showed up, yeah, he was just like the pictures. He had the hair. Um, he was shorter than I thought he might be, which made me happy because I. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rare for me to you know to have conductors it's part shorter of his than me. Non-threatening charm. Um. And now I help me out because I I can't remember whether he conducted Mahler or Brahms. I, it seems like I should be able to remember this, but I think it, it was, was Brahms too. I, yeah, I think it was Brahms, but it was it was a standard really piece. Know this. The, I think that was a, he made a, an analogy that I think everybody he was he's, he's always big on analogies, but this was uh, <laughs> everyone just was so he was such a breath of fresh air, and people just really responded to him really kind of right away and made this funny analogy about some some passage that had like a very quick crescendo very very <laughs> quick exuberant crescendo is like the moment when you rip the dress open yeah there was then there was a pause and he said i don't know what that's like you know what that's like but i don't know what that's like <laughs> yeah he, he has yeah. good timing with all of that he but does. there was there was one uncomfortable moment or one moment that could have gone uncomfortable and the way he handled it i think speaks to that i mean that gives every indication of why he's one of the most successful you know why he can go on to lead big orchestras and some other people maybe with with some of his flash or some of his facility don't or or couldn't a senior member of the orchestra asked a question how did he put it it was along the lines of you know maestro do you do you really want us to do the retard that you seem to be showing there um, I don't remember this. You don't remember this? It was so uncomfortable because, I mean, the way that it was asked, you know, there's no other interpretation than what you're showing is dumb. You know, because it's not normal. You you don't ask the conductor, do you mean what you're showing? Sure, of course not. Um, so, and the person that this was coming from was someone known to, you know, kind of screw with new conductors. Gustavo would have known about this person and known that something like that was coming. So it was kind of like he knew that he knew that he knew. And so when it happened, as it inevitably was going to, um, it was a test, right? And so there was kind of a silence. And yeah, so the question was, do you really mean this? And kind of paused and cocked his head. And he said, I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. But if anybody can do it, you can. So I trust you. Let's play. And then he started us back up right before anybody could really <laughs> take it in. And we did it. And this player did it. And it was, you know, maybe it was a little over the top, but it was so enthusiastic and he believed in it. And we, did, we just didn't, he didn't leave us any choice. Which is what great conductors yeah. do. Yeah, obviously. And just the way that he, because he could have made a, point you know kind of dig in his heels like i know you're disrespecting me or, or that could have been his attitude i know you're disrespecting me so i'm gonna show who's boss even though i'm only 20 whatever and some of that is the you know the luxury of the the guest con conductor right yeah you know that you this is not <laughs> your problem 
for after this week. So, so and then he could have gone the other way too. He could have just backed down and said, oh, you know, yeah, well, you know, maybe you're right. Let, let's try it another way. Yeah. Or let's not do it as much as I was doing. Well, he's, he's never lacked for confidence. That's right. For sure. And so the ability to handle people and that just can't be taught. I, I don't think, I mean, sure. you may learn on the job, but even now, if I had to stand up in front of a hundred semi-hostile professional musicians and they started questioning my abilities, you know, I, I don't know how I would react. It's not what I'm made for. Yeah. I, that's, you cannot take things too personally. I mean, we certainly have seen conductors take things very personally, which maybe is a whole other episode, but. Well, I do want to mention one because it, yeah, again, it involves a young conductor. We'll um, call him D. Harding. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Well, so it was Daniel Harding. And I, I mentioned his name because I, I feel like this story has a, a happy ending. Sure. Um, and also because he wrote and spoke about this um, episode, not the episode of this podcast, but <laughs> what happened with the orchestra. So he, in, in pretty quick succession, I think he conducted both Chicago and LA. This is years ago when he was a good bit younger and didn't hit it off really with either orchestra, right? There was friction in both places. I hope this doesn't offend anybody. I don't remember anyone having a super positive impression of his personality. Um, um, well, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Until a about. few years ago, yeah. Yeah. Well, and in Chicago specifically, he just, you know, he got into it with one of the string sections, and it was just one of those things where the way that Gustavo could have handled that other situation, that's kind of how Daniel Harding handled this. He got some flack from somebody in a string section and you know, gave it back to them a little bit. And then more of the strings joined in and there was a back and forth, which, you know, you, you always kind of dream of that <laughs> when you're sitting in the section, you're like, oh, someday I wish someone would just, you know, tell this guy what, what we really think. And, but then when it happens, it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> but I'm confused because apparently in England, isn't that much more how it's done, right? There's well, a little more apparently dialogue. there is more back and forth, but he could tell that this was, it was a, this had some a, intent behind it I, as i, I guess, understand yeah if it, it doesn't, doesn't usually happen then when it does it's sort of an, an overflow of bad feeling or something right and so to hear him talk about it later what had been bothering him about the week in chicago was that he looked at us and we were just stone-faced and he would make a suggestion well we he thought of them as suggestions or guidance and you know american orchestras in general we think of them as orders that we follow which we were, you know, happy to do, or at least, you know, would tolerate. Um, but I don't remember having a bad time until that sort of blow up. But in his mind, we had just been hating him and disrespecting him all week by sitting there silently doing what he asked. So he felt hostility from the very start, which nobody intended. And so he had been building it up in his mind. This is what he talked about in an interview later. And... You know, it just came out in an unfortunate way and kind of marred that week. I think the performances were fine, but, you know, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to his next time back there. But then years later, I read in an interview he gave that he came to see a rehearsal of the Chicago Symphony with Hightink, who was one of his idols and someone that he knew we respected. 
and he said we looked exactly the same way just <laughs> no reaction Dead eyed, no reaction yeah and so he realized then okay that's just that's the personality of this orchestra so i shouldn't have taken anything from that thought okay well at least in america anyway i'm gonna make some changes with how i interact and then when we saw him again in la for Mahler five a few years ago that was a great week it was a great week i would i would look forward to seeing him again yeah i do look forward to it um yeah that was he also referenced i think in that interview some kind of he said he was having some kind of rough time and conductors are people and they're yeah not, not immune to it. and again it's like the less personally conductors can take things that you know the more success they're going to have with an orchestra for sure yeah seen. well what is kind of the opposite side of the coin I know that when we had a rather elderly maestro with us recently, Charles Dutois, we were struck by, not the latest headlines, because this was before that, but we were struck by his complete knowledge of the scores and his willingness to talk about details with the kind of assurance that, that we're not used to hearing. Yeah, that- at the risk of, um, you know, the, the, the whole hashtag Me Too movement, we don't want to act like it's not a factor in how you consider an artist so no and and we may not play under him i'm sure ever we again i'm pretty honest, sure, I'm sure we, we won't. won't his he's an example of someone whose familiarity who we had recent contact with whose familiarity with a score that we didn't know at all i mean it was a very seldom played piece called um spanish hour mm-hmm. ravel ravel l'Espagnol. espanol um and yeah, it was, it was a, actually, you know, it was a great piece. But I think we, I think we started playing it thinking, never heard of this. And, you know, there's a, this jaded orchestra musician saying, so I don't know, there's a, there yeah, are, there's a, there are, there are no hidden honest, gems. Hidden gems. <laughs> there's a reason it's undiscovered. Or yeah, it's, you know, there's, well, we, we ne- almost never play something we haven't played before and think, wow, that was, you know, we've really been missing out. But, um, and even in this case, I wouldn't say we've, we've really been missing out, but, with someone who's so acquainted with a piece like that, you know, you, it's it, it's a very memorable experience. Well, and w- some of the things that he said and the and rehearsal techniques that he used just aren't that common, even though they were common when we were in youth orchestra, <laughs> like tuning chords. Um, Fortunately insisting... not, uh, person by person. <laughs> no, he did not do that. But, you know, when we were in youth orchestra it was pretty commonplace to have people just say, you know, no, sorry, this note needs to be higher. This note needs to be lower. Um, these two instrument groups are together, so they need to balance exactly. And if we didn't do it right, we just had to do it again and again until it was right. Oh, I don't really remember that. I do. From youth orchestra, you don't? Well, and it must have happened. I, I'm sure since it didn't involve me, I was probably writing notes to people or something. <laughs> Love notes. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no um, late bloomer but um <laughs> yeah I, i'm sure i was just either you know panicking over something and we were probably going to be asked to play by ourselves or so I, I i don't remember i'm sure you're right um i i just think you know there was a big power imbalance in youth orchestra right so there was no no baggage if a conductor yelled at a bunch of kids that they were out of tune but you know as we got into professional groups i remember baron even would say I'm not going to critique your, you know, the orchestra's intonation because I'm a pianist. And mm-hmm. so I, and it's something that I don't have to deal with as intimately. So I don't have the confidence to tell people 
Now he would sometimes, but (laughs) but I think that's true for a great many conductors and including some of the younger ones who just don't want to go there because, you know, they've seen and heard how that can go wrong. You know, you criticize someone's intonation, they don't always take it so well. And only if you're certain. We definitely observe that conductors, especially I would say young conductors. I mean, we're sort of talking about that. Yeah. Older conductors I've seen do it. Younger conductors... I think are less inclined because I think they would rather not. It's a little bit of a thorny area of the orchestra that they, I think those are the, some of the bigger personalities. Right. Well, you just, when you do it, you, you have to keep things moving and you have to move through it with assurance. You, you, you can't show any signs of weakness and, and that has to be because you're right. You just have to be right. (laughs) Yeah. You've got to have a great ear. I mean, I, it is incredible when you see somebody older with this that kind of knowledge of, of score able to pick out a chord with 10 notes in it, you know, weird notes, you know, and, and pick out ex- the exact pitches that need to go in, in the exact directions. It's, it's right. an amazing thing. And not just as a parlor trick or anything, but because the musical line only makes sense when certain notes in a chord are highlighted. I remember with Pierre Boulez the same thing and you know he was famous for the parlor trick stuff right you know second harp your (laughs) your middle note in the chord is not right and all that and you know and he was right but there too we'd be doing these really thorny scores that really just didn't make any sense until you had the key basically it's like the answer so much if you think of Boulez's music too so much is like those notes have to just be in the right place otherwise it's just cacophonous right so yeah sure we love that about some of the older, more experienced conductors. Um, we do wish that, that some of the younger people we had would... Um, would I, th- I, I do feel that the sections closest, physically closest to a conductor are often the ones to bear the brunt of their, <laughs> their observation and their, their comments. Yeah. Well, this maybe to, to finish this episode, we should just have a rundown of some of our least favorite conductor techniques especially ones that we i was like when you're gonna say least favorite conductors oh yeah (laughs) it's that kind of episode (laughs) spicy um yeah maybe maybe especially things that we've predominantly seen from the younger conducting crowd although i'm sure that every one of these would also exist in conductors of all ages but yeah your your thing about only commenting on the things right under your eyes and ears i.e yeah. The front of the string sections. Kind of a pet peeve, yeah. What else? Yeah. Um, You're talking specifically sort of younger conductors. Well, sure. Let, let, let's start there because, I mean, there are all kinds of yeah, could, we could go all night bad conducting stuff. techniques. But I guess let's let's make the common factor things that you do because you don't have enough experience. Okay. If, if that's going to be one of the big differences between conductors coming up now and conductors coming up generations ago. Sure. I mean, at the risk of sounding like a orchestra musician who doesn't want to change, they do. I think there's a feeling sometimes that a young conductor comes in with a laundry list. Uh, so before we've played uh-huh. a note, they've already kind of decided on a bunch of stuff that they're going to talk about. Right. Not so fun. Yeah. it's And it's always telling, right, when they conduct without a score and then... <laughs> so like rehearse without a score <laughs> we, we've had yeah i can think of a couple who've um 
they rehearse without a score. We finish running through the movement and then they're like, all right, clarinets 12 before C, please um, do this. Strings, I believe it's 18 before <laughs> E. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> you didn't you're memorize. coming up with this You right memorize now. those spots, but you didn't <laughs> just pluck that out of the air. Yeah, there's there's that. So, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's we're we try to be open to right because in in some ways it's sure. like if you're a young conductor you can't win right because you you try to put your own stamp on things and then people are like ah, who they think they are tell us how to play la yeah, there's some and, of that yeah. and you know and then if you don't say anything with the piece then it's oh, they got nothing to say you know and a little humor goes a long way we, you know yeah it's like a date you know you hear somebody laugh it's always a good sign well yeah. so okay yeah taking yourself way too seriously that i haven't i can't remember the last time i really ran into that well what about the um the phony accent phony accent it's a phony european accent if we, if we find out in this day and age of the internet it's pretty easy to to find out someone's you know origin story is and if it doesn't line up with their accent it can be <laughs> can be a source of derision or even <laughs> when they have when they have that mix of you know all the words are normal except for the italian ones like yes. please pl- play a forte here and <laughs> yeah <laughs> violins <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the yeah, phony accent that's that's minus minus a few points i think also when you're a, a young conductor and especially if it's your first chance with a particular orchestra you don't want to not use huge swaths of your rehearsal time, right? Because if you, you know, if you've been given four rehearsals and you cut well, that's a, that's three of them short. Well, that's just our theory, right? I mean, we don't know. We don't know that for sure. I think. Well, but some of the time we can tell basically a conductor doesn't have anything more to say, but, but they're kind of looking a, at the a, clock. And, that's an age old oh, I, that That could exist with a lot of ages. But say yeah. say that you're I mean, a young conductor, though, have... and... You you know you want to had a conductor who is not young who yeah who the very very worst defender no names yeah okay well then maybe this is has nothing to do with age but yeah you you finished all your meaningful work but there's still time left on the clock so you come up with something to waste everyone's time yeah I think um, don't do that and we don't want to sound again like the orchestra players are just like. Hey, you know, I <laughs> got tra- places traffic to be. is getting worse and worse. They might as well let us out, you know. <laughs> Where's our bathroom break? Yeah, I mean. I admit um, there's some of that. but I think, you know, we can turn this around and say, what, what is it they can do right? I think, um, you know, having a sense of humor, not taking themselves too seriously. That's always something that we, we love, you know, because, because there is an imbalance of power. You know, this person is in charge of you. They own us. Yeah. And so I think uh, if somebody... You know, it's very young, and the end there's that imbalance of power. I think you know it can be an even tougher sell for all these people to to like you. So it's a tough job for them. Well, that's where trust comes into play, right? An orchestra has to feel within the first minute that they can trust this person, and then the most successful weeks are where that conductor also demonstrates that they trust the orchestra, right? Which and is, that, I think, that's one of the hardest things. Sure. I mean, I still feel like. Um, something seasoned conductors oh, struggle sure. with, you know, and there's a, and there's a sense when things don't go right that they just didn't trust us enough. Yeah. And, but if there's a way, so, you know, you ask what a young conductor can do for those places where you can feel the orchestra leading in a certain, in a, in a certain direction to go with that sometimes, you know, to, to pick your battles. Sure. I think and, I, that, that is a big mistake. I think for a young conductor, 
to try to force the issue right with um and they do that in rehearsal sometimes it's just something and then what what ends up happening a lot of the time again i don't mean to make it sound like we won't do certain things but it's like you know there's a retard that's it's kind of built in a little bit you know and it's like it's it's like an iceberg it's like you can't really shift (laughs) position you know so it's you know you have to sometimes you can successfully eliminate um, a habit when orchestra is ingrained but um if you can't then yeah you kind of have to i think you have to go with it right it's it's a partnership it's one one against a hundred or or also one with a hundred i guess certain conductors can yeah. Inspire enough that that magic blend of fear and focus. <laughs> That's good. I like that phrase. Yeah, then uh yeah, that people basically just riveted to that conductor, then then those and those are the best performances, you know, then those are the yeah. ones that, that you really stick with you. And and those I, those conductors I think have they can pretty much do what they want and yeah. orchestra will follow them. Well, that's why we're why we're in the orchestra it, it feels like moments. an amazing magic trick when it happens because yeah cause it's, it's not always and it's not even if the same person can come back and it, it maybe it won't happen again yeah you know, and there's some of that first time mag- magic when you see a conductor right i mean we've seen several you know great conductors or or well thought of conductors who you know they, they come the first time and there's this feeling of like total just you know love at first sight and you're swooning and then it might be as soon as the second or third visit. They're like, yeah, they're <laughs> We've not seen as great what as they've we got thought, to you know. offer. Well, and every conductor was young once. As they say, every, all music was new music once. <laughs> we wish all the young conductors well and that they season, season gracefully. Grow, grow a thick skin. That's my advice. Well, <laughs> yeah. You're going to need it. <laughs> yeah. But not, you know, not because of me. I won't give you a hard time. No, that's right. If you look out, you'll get Nathan Cole and he'll <laughs> smooth your path. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. And for anyone listening who is not already subscribed on iTunes or wherever you digest your podcasts, please hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. Um, you can go right to standpartnersforlife.com and there you'll see the easy instructions to subscribe on iTunes or to find that feed in any of your other podcast apps. So thanks again so much for being here. Leave us that feedback, ratings, or reviews. We love to read them, and uh, we're so happy you've been here with us at Stand Partners for Life. See you next time.